He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, February 13th, 2021. Happy Valentine's Day weekend. You'll love this show. Whitney Trailer comes into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. He is Nine News legal analyst, and it turns out we go way back. Back to when Diana DeGette first ran for the House, got elected, beat a Republican named Joe Rogers. Whitney Trailer was part of that campaign with Joe, and I got to know him then. Ian Silberry is a really cool dude. I've gotten to know him on this podcast. Wait till you hear that interview. He's a Denver Post columnist and a Democratic strategist. And then we have our troubadour. He's saying some days and He explains the nature of the song, and it is spectacular. I've been watching this impeachment show, and I've got a lot of thoughts about it. I wish I was one of the lawyers, a house manager to be more specific, although I think I could do a better job for Trump than these guys are doing, although I don't think I'd want to. I especially like the Friday question and answer session. A lawyer needs to think on his feet. I like that. No witnesses. It doesn't look like there will be witnesses. That's a darn shame. Let's hear from Kevin McCarthy. Let's hear from Mike Pence. Let's hear from the people who can give us more insight into the president. I fear the House managers are going to come up short, not for a lack of trying and good effort, But it would be nice if they had more evidence of planning and coordination between Trump and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers with conduits, Roger Stone, Mike Flynn, others. They touched on it, but they didn't get there. And I think they are going to fall just a little short. As for the lawyers, let me comment as follows. Mike Pence is a lawyer. It's a shame he won't speak up. Not surprising, but seems to me that Donald Trump did not care if his beep was killed that day. And then he could have imposed martial law and he had a twisted scheme to stay in power. Who are the president's lawyers? Bruce Castor Jr. put on one of the worst displays of advocacy. This guy is unctuous. You can look it up. It's oily, Bruce Castor oil. Get it? David Schoen has disgraced the name David Schoen and his religion, Judaism. Man, when he drank water and put his hand on his head as if he had a yarmulke on, well, then put a yarmulke on, man. Speaking of yarmulkes, kind of rhymes with Kamala, which rhymes with Mamala. And anybody can learn how to say Kamala or Mamala, except Michael Vanderveen. 
the big white lawyer that Donald Trump hired who calls her Kamala. Why does a grown man do that? How can he be so ignorant and as bad as he is? He might be the best lawyer that Trump's had because he will spew Trumpist bullshit. And I bet Trump likes that. I like the house managers. Let me go through them one through nine. Diana DeGette, what can I say? I'm proud of my Colorado college classmate. She did a great job Thursday morning. Looked good, sounded good. She's my rep. I voted for her. Way to go, Diana. Jonah Goose, I know you too. See you, law grad. You are making Colorado proud. Nobody uses his body and hands and fingers better. And the guy, when he talks to me in person, he's so casual and relaxed. That's the way he seemed on the Senate. Making his presentation of a lifetime. He's the kind of guy you want to talk to when you're at a party. Stacy Plaskett, I'd like to meet her. This representative from the Virgin Islands making history. Not just the first African woman, I dare say the tallest African woman. She's like a queen up there. She commands the room. I thought she was terrific. Joaquin Castro, my goodness, maybe you should have run for president instead of your twin brother. A voice to die for. He went to Stanford and Harvard after going to San Antonio Public Schools. Way to go, man. Ted Lou, I follow you on Twitter. You are calm. You're a great presenter. I can see why you were a great prosecutor. And thank you for your service in the military. Madeleine Dean, what a great lawyer you are. You exude credibility. You were the former head of the Pennsylvania Trial Lawyers Association. And I understand why. David Cicilline, gosh, you're good. I like you, man. And just like Ian Silveri, my guest this show, you're part Italian and part Jewish. But you're proud of being a Jew and you remain a Jew, just like Ian Silveri. God bless you, Representative Cicilline. And Eric Swalwell, you and I had a little interaction on Twitter. I think you are a hoot. I made mention that Lauren Boebert's husband looks like Eric Swalwell, and I may have tagged him. He fired right back in a good-natured way. This guy monitors Twitter. I monitored the bad news about Jamie Raskin and the death of his son, Tommy, on New Year's Eve. I couldn't believe it. I've long admired Professor Raskin, a con law legend. He taught at American University, had a beautiful family, an accomplished wife, and his beautiful son, his second-year law student at Harvard, killed himself because of depression New Year's Eve. And while Jamie Raskin dealt with that, the events of January 6th unfolded, and he took on this task, and wow, he's like a father figure, and he's doing it inspired by Tommy who he named for Thomas Paine. And he gave a talk about common sense that I will not forget. Way to go, man. Whitney Trailer and I talk about what's going on here. But before we get there, let me just hit on what I think is really important and what I would have emphasized. That tweet about six o'clock by Donald Trump on January 6th. That's what happens 
when you steal an election or words to that effect. Rubbing it in. A confession. Remember this day. Really? It's a great day? It's a celebration? Like Osama bin Laden and his guys celebrated 9-11? What are you talking about? Donald Trump made a lot of mistakes. I think he should be arrested and prosecuted, certainly convicted at this impeachment trial, and disqualified. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Throughout my career, I've had Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, which is a place where prominent lawyers come to relax, tell war stories, and kick around current events. And guess what, Whitney Trailer, This is your day in the lounge. Well, I'm happy to be here. This is quite an honor. I don't know where we're going in the lounge, but I am sitting right now. <laughs> Let me tell you what we try to find out, Whitney. We try to find out how, when, why did you decide to become a lawyer? And of course, we need your bar number to make sure you are eligible to come into the lounge. Oh, okay. So the bar number is 28102. So am I, am I too old? Have I, have I no. the limit? Now you're talking to 11224. So you're a spring chicken. Okay. <laughs> yes, that's impressive. So, okay, well, good. So I can sit in the lounge. Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. And, and if you want, my paralegals can bring you almost anything your heart desires. It's virtual. So I think... You will enjoy it, especially in your imagination. So just let me know if there's anything we can do for you. Whitney, when we were prepping to have this interview, and I'm so thrilled to have Nine News legal expert Whitney Trailer on, you reminded me that we have met each other in the past. Remind me now that we're broadcasting. Yeah, Craig, it goes back to the mid-90s and Joe Rogers' campaign when Joe Rogers was running for Congress in the first congressional district, who at the time it was Pat Schroeder. But during that campaign, she dropped out, and now Diana DeGette, she actually filled the seat back in 96. And so, and we know she was one of the impeachment managers. So it was through Joe Rogers, and at that time, I believe you were running for DA. No, not quite yet. But I'll fill in my part. You keep going. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I think you were either running or getting ready to run yes. because I know at, at that time we had a couple conversations. At least you and I had some side conversations about possibly doing some commercials with you and Joe Rogers. And, you know, it was just very casual conversations. But that's when you and I met and you were very impressive at the time and very gracious. So I've known you since then. And then a couple years ago, Go, you reached out and we were talking about doing an interview somewhere. I don't know, you, you're many outlets that you've had and that didn't pan out. And so when you reached out via email, I said, hey, this sounds great. And it, it didn't seem like you quite remembered. So hopefully well, yeah, I filled in the blanks. <laughs> I'm old. I've had a lot of experiences, but it's all coming back to me now. But tell everybody your background. Did you grow up here in Denver? Yes. So I grew up in Denver, actually, out in Lakewood. I went to Bear Creek High School, believe it or not, Jefferson County. And then... Time out. You know who else went to Bear Creek? Of course, George Brockler. No. Well, I, is that who you were thinking about? <laughs> Brockler. 
Oh, there's so many important people. I thought since my wife, Trent. Oh, I did not know what class were you at Bear Creek? I was 89. What was Brockler? Brockler was 88. Yes, he's older than me. And I just assumed it was him because, you know, he's he's been very, very prominent. Yes. But my wife is more important to me. I hope you understand that. Of course. And you're doing a great job getting your uh, points before Valentine's Day. I think she was in the 80s, but not quite the late 80s. She might be a little older than you. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I was at Bear Creek and then I went to Regis for two years on a soccer scholarship and Regis was great. And then I transferred to Morehouse, which is in Atlanta. And Morehouse was completely phenomenal, changed my life and graduated from Morehouse in 93 and stayed in Atlanta, went to Emory. And at that time I was so focused on manifesting your dreams and keeping positive thoughts and things that I only applied to Emory. (laughs) And, you know, obviously we tell students, hey, apply to some safe schools. You know, and Emory's a top 15, I think, at the time, and or maybe 20. So I only applied to that. So now that I look back, because my credentials, they met the minimum qualifications, but it was by no stretch of the imagination a done deal. And so I look back on that now and it's impressive i guess that i would <laughs> that it worked out that way and so nonetheless i went to emory and graduated from emory and actually while i was in you know my last year of emory is when i met joe rogers because i had no intentions of returning back to colorado i wanted to stay in atlanta and so i met joe and then he asked me to work on his campaign and up until that time i had not had a lot of campaign experience other than in school, I was student body president and yeah, and these kind of things. So nonetheless, I joined Joe Rogers' team and, you know, I thought I was going to go to D.C. with the team and we didn't win. And so then just very briefly, I worked with Ty Holt and then we merged with Ireland Stapleton. And that's where I started working with Don Samuels a lot. And then I left Ireland Stapleton, wrote a book, did not get rich and started my practice. Your book, was it about being a father and a lawyer? What am I remembering? Yeah, it's about being a dad. The title is Dad Under Construction. One Man's Journey to Become the Father He Never Had, I guess, is the idea behind it. And so that book came out, oh gosh, that was like 15 years ago. And my daughter at the time, she was five. She's now, oh, so I guess it was longer than that. She's 23 now. So it was 18 years ago. Gosh, it's kind of similar. I also have Ian Silveri on my show, and he came to Colorado for a political campaign. So did you. He's dedicated to being a father. So are you. So am I. I think that's really cool. Who were the role models? Did you have any lawyers in your family? No. You know, we did not have any lawyers in the family. And honestly, I didn't even know lawyers growing up or didn't know that they were lawyers, I guess. So my desire to be a lawyer, honestly, it's interesting because when I was in college, I really was deciding between teaching and law. And the real idea was, you know, both of those professions, you can help people. And I've always been kind of gravitated towards the little guy. So law is what I ended up, uh, you know, doing. And interestingly, though, I started teaching at MSU Denver, in 2006. So I hadn't 
my practice from, I don't know, maybe 2000. And then I started teaching at MSU Denver as a full-time professor in the management department in the College of Business. So at that point, I slowed down the practice. And so I was practicing and teaching full-time. That kind of brings us to here. And I started with Nine News as a legal analyst, not as an employee. So I've been with the news since October of 2017. That's cool. And I want to go back to Moorhead because I I don't know. Not Moorhead. I mean, no, Moorhead and Emory and Atlanta, because I think that's where Donald Trump might meet his Waterloo. They have a new DA, Bonnie <laughs> Willis, and she yes. says she's going to look into that called Rappensburger, yep. Yep. and she should, because that's a slam dunk interference case, although they trotted out their defense today. It was interesting mm-hmm. with the impeachment trial. We're taping this on Friday afternoon, but I think Atlanta might be the place where justice will come to Donald Trump. It may come from a lot of directions, but I like the young, mm-hmm. new African-American mm-hmm. female DA, Bonnie Willis. I think she might get the job done. Well, I have a few things to say about that. First, I have to make a very important clarification. You said Moorhead. It's Moorhouse. Moorhouse, Moorhouse College. Yes. That's stupid. Yes. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so, no, it happens. Moorhead, I think, is in Wisconsin. But no, Moorhouse is in Atlanta, and it's part of the Atlanta University Center. Right. I think I bet on Moorhead in a basketball game last night. Forgive me. Ah, no worries. So, and you were mentioning Fonnie Willis. She was my classmate in at Emory. We no way. We graduated together. Yeah. And however she's appearing in the public is, is how she is. She is tough as nails. You know, if anybody can get it done, she's someone who can get it done. Did you ever meet Lisa Willis in the Denver DA's office? She is a very bright African-American who I helped bring into the office. She started as victim advocate, ended up one of the top chief deputies over there. I need to get her in lawyer's lounge. But I've worked with a lot of great African-American attorneys, including Norm Early, who was in the lounge, who is living now in Atlanta. I don't know much. God, I even said Moorhead instead of Morehouse. But I do know Emory. It's a cool little private college, isn't it? Yes. And don't they have a lot of Jewish people there, too? Yes, they do. And, you know, they have a huge endowment because of Coca-Cola. And so the medical school, the business school, the law school, they have just a beautiful campus, a lot of research going on. So Emory's phenomenal. The the time in Atlanta was, you know, both at Morehouse and and Emory was just life-changing. It was a really good experience. I admire Bonnie Willis from afar. I did not know, Whitney Trailer, that you were friends with her at Emory. I mean, were you close? If you called her, she would know who you are? Oh, yeah. We're still Facebook friends. And in fact, when she was running before this position, I think it was when she was running for a judicial position, we had had some communication about you know, helping her out. And, and it just didn't happen. I was here in Denver and, and she was in Atlanta. So yeah, we're still Facebook friends. She's accessible. She took a real shot running against her boss. I've been there, done that. And did you think she was going to win? Well, 
I knew she could, and I knew, you know, I'm, I'm not there, but I felt like from this distance that she was continuing to gain traction everywhere she went. She garnered support. But I'll tell you, Craig, so you had asked earlier, were we close? And I'd say, yeah, we were close because there wasn't a lot of black students at Emory. It was a small, you know, it's a small school. So we were all part of Balsa and, you know, there's very real relationships. A lot of us, you know, didn't have lawyers in the family. So the whole experience was completely new, outlining, you know, that process. And I was one of those people. I was very clueless to the whole process just because, you know, I just didn't grow up around it, wasn't familiar with it, but we made it through. So one thing I'll say about Fani that I remember is she had so much confidence, not in a cocky way, but if you're going to go through hell, you want her on your team. I mean, she's sort of unmovable, right? Like she's just her position and her temperament and her, yes, and her, and her disposition. And it's like, she's going to get the job done. That's my memory of her. And so I can't imagine, you know, 20, 25 years later, how much more intense that probably is. My gosh, what a small world because she is young, aggressive and smart. And they have a really good case against Donald Trump. I don't know how he's going to wiggle out of it. Georgia kind of saved the nation. Raphael Warnock, John Ossoff voting for Joe Biden. Like I say, I'm a Denver guy, but it seems like Atlanta in particular and its suburbs really saved America, at least for now. Yeah, and it's interesting to see what conversion that's happening. And it just shows the changes in the country to think that Georgia in the, you know, the deep south would be the state to do this is remarkable. And I'll have to tell you another connection. And this is why I proudly said Morehouse College is Senator Warnock. He's a Morehouse grad. He graduated in 91. And so we did a couple fundraisers for him, some of the alumni here. And so I think he's going to be phenomenal. Isn't Terrence Carroll from Morehouse as well? Yes, absolutely. He's been a guest many times in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. What is it about Morehouse men? It must be a great school. Well, it is a great school. I mean, I think one of the quotes that stands out to me, I think it was Robert Franklin who made the quote and really was focused on developing Renaissance men, you know, that are well-spoken, well-read, well-traveled. And I think that's what you have. Morehouse carries such a reputation that going into it, you feel the history and you feel being part of that history. And so I think it it naturally elevates you. And the the alumni of Morehouse is super impressive. And so, you know, it's a historically black college that is part of the AUC. So they're all historically black colleges. What is AUC? That's the Atlanta University Center. So all the schools essentially share, they're all close together. There's one common library. So it's Morehouse and what else? So Morehouse, which is all male, Spelman, which is all female, where my daughter graduated from actually in 2019. And then Clark Atlanta University, Morris Brown and ITC, which is a theological seminary. I didn't know that. So, So down south, you grew up at Bear Creek. There must not have been a lot of black students there, right? No, (laughs) there wasn't. Did you feel more racism in Jefferson County or Atlanta, Georgia? Uh, It's not even a question, Jefferson County. I'm looking back on it now, and I had some really 
good friends and some really good teachers that really were, I mean, I, I can't say anything about sort of the education and the experience in that regard, but yeah, it was very racist. I mean, there were a lot of, and you know, and at the time, you know, when you're young and you, you just, you don't know how to handle all of these situations, you know, you always sort of kind of have to be on guard. And I say that because now reflecting, I just realized just how many times, you know, and I'm not talking about just called the M word. I played soccer, basketball, and track in high school. So, and I was always mouthing off as well, but I got called the M word all the time playing sports. But, you know, now as you get older and things start to settle in and you can kind of see it with a more contextual lens, you, you know, I'm realizing there were a lot of situations that were just tough. I mean, and I can tell you horror story after horror story, which, you know, we can do, but we don't, I don't know that we need to. But with that said, the transition to Morehouse and going to a historically black college and going from the environment from Jefferson County to Atlanta, for me was completely liberating. I mean, it was really, honestly, the first time that I felt like I really fit in. And I didn't know anybody when I set foot on campus. I mean, I transferred completely, you know, on my own. I made the decision and, and I went out and I didn't know anybody. And, and it was, it was almost like I could breathe. And it was, you just don't realize, uh, or at least I didn't realize how much race is constantly being put in your face. And I'm saying this as a black person. And I know, you know, there's a lot of people saying, well, now you all are bringing race up all the time. But I'm saying, you know, I just look back like the two years I was at Regis, I was almost a straight A student. I was, you know, on the, the soccer team. I was on a student body uh, president scholarship. I, I had success basically on on every, you know, measurable. But I had so many students that would say, oh, you're only here because you're black or, you know, you're filling a quota. And it wasn't even a lot of times it wasn't even malicious. These were the friendly conversations, you know, and when you look back and me personally, I had to choose, you know, choose my battles. So that kind of thing was just on a regular basis. And now when you look back and step back and realize, I think the psychological aspect of just constantly having to, you know, address that kind of thing. So, yeah, in the 80s, going to school in an all white environment for me in Jefferson County was you know, was tough. And, and people would say, well, you were, you know, president of your class, you student body president, did all, but it was, I mean, I had coaches, I had all kinds of people confronting you, you know, and at 15, 16, 17, it, it can be a lot. And I'm, I, I'm sorry to, to elaborate and go on this tangent. No, that's but, all right. You should have gone to high school where I did at George Washington. <laughs> I know. It was a different experience, but let me tell you, the baseball coach, because I played baseball, basketball, and I played golf on the golf team, but the baseball coach ran a restricted swimming club where Jews historically were not allowed, and he's supposed to be my baseball coach, and he was. But anyway, wow. I'm sorry you went through that, but I'm not sorry because Regis Bear Creek, Regis knocked us out at the state tournament when we were ranked number one in 73. And then Bear Creek did it to us at the state tournament in 74. <laughs> so you represent all that's wrong in the world, but for racism. <laughs> Let me tell you about racism okay. today. 
this jerk-off lawyer for Donald Trump named Vanderveen, he keeps calling the vice president of the United States Kamala. Kamala. Her name is Kamala. And if you can't say the word comma, then what's wrong with you? You put a comma (laughs) in your sentence, say comma, and then say la. Instead of mispronouncing her name over and over, is that racist when he does that? Or I mean, maybe it's a mistake, but to me, if you can't learn how to pronounce the vice president of the United States, and on my show, Whitney, I battle the racism that is part of Trumpism, and something about Kamala Harris really brings it out in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and this just speaks, you know, it's since George Floyd, so much has come out and people have started to, you know, see things in a different light and 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 some tides are shifting. You know, I'm 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 sort of seeing the George Floyd effect dying down. People are not maybe as, as gracious or understanding. And so now some of it, you know, has become white noise and and people aren't as empathetic. But First of all, it's the vice president. Of course, it would be an ultimate disrespect to mispronounce any vice president's name. But in this case, in this historic situation and with a not majority type name for him to not make the effort to privately learn this, to not take the time to just be able to pronounce her name right, I do think is complete disrespect. And I think the symbolism, the optic of it speaks volumes. And honestly, we're so polarized right now and we're so divided. And it's a lot of times it's like, well, guys, hold on. Let's just let's talk about this and let's just think about this. It's so beautiful. And you brought it to George Floyd because somebody can mispronounce, uh, you know, Kamala, Kamala. I get that. But you brought it back to George Floyd and optics. And the thing that bothered me and made me say, whoa, because I was a prosecutor in Denver for 16 years. I worked with the police. I'm a friend of the police, but my God, it wasn't just the one guy kneeling on George Floyd's neck. It's the three other guys. Right, right. And Craig, just to bring it even to a micro level, the people watching that literally that were there and they were like sort of trying to intervene and they were, you know, they didn't know what to do. They were screaming. Those people, we all saw it on TV, and there's certainly individual and collective trauma, but the people that watch that, their lives will never be the same, right? I mean, one, just the visual, but two, being put in a position of, you know, and I, and I thought about this afterwards. I said, what would I do if I was there? You know, because, of course, if you, you know, try to, to bum rush the police, you're going to end up dead too. Well, you know, in in a lot of cases, possibly. And a lot of us look at that and we, we have the ability to process and think it through and say, I do this or that. And we can do that now. But when we're in the situation, you don't know what you would do. And so I know that George Floyd is completely a huge and significant change in, in our society. And so I don't mean to miss that point. I just like sometimes we just don't appreciate the harm that we're doing to one another. And we're so dug in on our position that it's hard to just step back and actually appreciate another position and say, you know, I, I am willing to at least look at this or, or entertain it because 
people start off so pissed off that there's no way you can listen, learn, or anything. And that's, to me, the most frustrating aspect of this time is that, you know, I've been on the front lines for, you know, 20, 25 years, and I'm tired, you know, and I just feel so tired. That- You're a young man. Come on, 28102 with that kind of bar number. You got to keep going for a while. I'm finishing my fourth decade, and the problem is, not just the people sitting around watching George Floyd get killed by Derek Chauvin, but Donald Trump. And I don't like to call people racist, but I think he is. And 74 million Americans voted for him. What's that about? I was thinking we were getting past racism, that your kids, my kids, I'm hoping this is the last gasp, but my God, what a gasp. 74 million people voted for this guy. What's up with that? I was actually teaching over in Hungary during the campaign. I taught for a semester in Pace at the University of Pace, which was an, uh, an amazing situation. And they were, yeah, and they were watching this and they were watching the elections and when Trump got the nomination and they said, is this for real? You know, and I said, no, you know, we're moving in a different direction. And so when he won, everybody was was shot and there was some embarrassment, like everybody was kind of like, what is going on in the states? And yeah, for this, you know, at the time he ran in 2016, of course, he had a body of work and a record that we could all look at. But now in this election, there was so many examples of just completely outrageous. I mean, do you agree with me? Is he a racist? Based on, you know, the evidence, yeah, I think there is. I I mean, I'm a Colorado kid. I didn't really study Trump. You know, New Yorkers might have had an advantage, but what was it that made you say, yeah, this guy's racist? Well, I don't know which of the comments. I I think it might have been, you know, when he was talking about the shithole countries and and he was talking about Haiti and and just all these black countries. And then that was a pretty good tip off. And really, when he ripped Judge Curiel as, uh, you know, a Mexican judge, that should have been it. But Charlottesville and damn, I'm selfish because when they started chanting Jews will not replace us. I mean, that kind of hit home to me and I right. should have been more alert to it. But have you noticed how anti-Semitism and bigotry and racism all go together? Of course. And and when you I remember that vividly. And what I remember is the the anger and the vitriol from the way these guys look. Yeah, it was shocking. But I think, you know, one of the things about Donald Trump was uh, just, for example, when he got elected, the FBI, there were about 400 new hate white nationalist groups that were essentially put on the FBI list. And so we saw this rise, obviously, and one of the things, whether it was a bird call or or whatever, or a dog whistle, you know, the fact that I'm looking at how he responded to these things. And he said, you know, when somebody said, well, will you denounce white supremacy? And he kind of jokingly went through, this was a few years back, and, and you know, said the KKK and all the, did I get them all? You know, and of course, everybody's quoting, you know, good people on both sides. And then what happened on January 6th, the issue is that he knows 
who the following is. He knows how many more of these hate groups came up. And it was his casual nature. Because if you're saying, some people are saying, well, he can't help who endorses him. You know, but when you have a whole series of white nationalist groups endorsing you, including David Duke, and you say, well, I don't know much about the KKK. I don't know. That's obviously an implicit permission for these folks to continue to operate as they are, which we see this rise. But it also sends a message to the rest of us. And of course, there's so much evidence that, you know, everybody has talked about extensively to show his track record on race. But I'm saying when folks who are in positions of power and in positions to change policy or to do things, when they allow these things to happen and when they don't do anything, then the harm is twofold. It's the actual violence from these these organizations. And then it's sort of the psychological aspect that you're not really safe, you know, because the, the people who can do something about it aren't doing anything about it, you know, and that's when it gets scary because you don't know which way to turn or where it may be coming from. I mean, I watched on January 6th the way that insurrection happened, Craig. I had such a horrible feeling for a day or two. I mean, I couldn't shake it. It's still with me. And how about the Confederate flag all over the place running through the rotunda of the Capitol and not a one of those thousands of Trumpsters did anything about it? You know what? (laughs) You're a decent person caught up in it. Why don't you knock the guy with the Confederate flag on his ass? Say, we don't buy that here. But they didn't. Isn't that revealing? Completely. And it wasn't. There were many Confederate flags throughout the the situation, along with Trump flags. And, you know, and it, it doesn't make sense to have a Confederate flag on the floor of the Capitol. That's not patriotic. That's the the. The other direction. That's, you know, that's you all lost like oh, that. He's it, perverted it. And now the defense today, I know you had to work. I watched it. But the defense is, oh, he said, go peacefully and patriotically down to the Capitol. That was his last line. And he knows what to say. He got his ass sued for a guy who got beat up at one of his rallies. And he used one last line of, OK, go easy on him or whatever after he had incited the crowd and some circuit said, well, that's okay. We're going to throw out this lawsuit. So Donald Trump always walking right up to the line, but I think he gave it away when he put that tweet out the night of January 6th, when you and I were heartbroken, he said, Hey, that's what happens. You know, it's like a pimp to a prostitute, you know, Hey, you don't turn over the money. You're going to get beat. That's what happens. You know, And this is a day you should remember because, you know, you got taught a little lesson about messing with Donald Trump. It's a confession. What are they debating? It's sickening to me that we have 44 Republican senators who may vote not to convict. It's a sad reflection on where we are in America. And you brought up Joe Rogers. Let's talk about Joe Rogers for a bit because I'm starting to remember you and our interactions. And what probably attracted me to you was you were a jock, you played hoop. And we probably talked about that, but Joe was a Republican. He was a black guy and he was willing to take on the establishment. 
Tell me about Joe Rogers. He passed away way too young, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, a few years back. And, and you were talking about the insurrection, and I, and I will remember to come back to Joe sure. for sure. But on the insurrection, the issue for me was there were two tweets that he made almost directly after. And he said, take it easy on the boys in blue. They're on our side, something to that effect. If you read those tweets, to me, there is so much more to that. I mean, he's basically like, hey, take it easy on law enforcement. That was it. You know, it was almost like he was implicitly given permission. Yeah, he mm-hmm. probably thought the cops were going to be on his side. Right, but I, it almost seemed like he was saying, hey, everything else is free game. Take it easy on, you know, on the cops. And and it was interesting because so many people in the president's circle were calling him on that day, trying to get him to call them off. One of which you may have seen on ABC, Chris Christie, he did an interview and he was saying, I've been trying to reach him for the last hour and a half, and he strongly came out against this. And the reason everybody was reaching out to, and this is an argument, you know, that I think the managers made, the reason that everybody was reaching out to uh, Trump is because he's the one who can stop it. You know, he's the only one, you know, I think it just says a lot, those, particularly those two tweets. But First of all, this was the most unusual trial. We're both lawyers. There were no witnesses. You kind of base whatever you want on the news and then the public will fact check you or the other side. But it's weird rules of evidence. But I think they made the case. And right now they're arguing about due process. My God, that involves notice and an opportunity to respond. Donald Trump could testify. He was invited. He could put on any witnesses he wants. It's not a criminal prosecution. It's a job. We're going to disqualify you for this job because you've demonstrated that you can't be trusted. Anyway, let's go back to Joe Rogers because he was a cool dude and he's coming back to me now. And let me tell you, you bring up Diana DeGette. Here's what happened. Pat Schroeder was in there for many decades. It suddenly announced that she's going to give up the job. I was a Democrat at the time. And some people even wrote about me pursuing the job because I had demonstrated some ambition when Norm Early stepped down and Romer appointed uh, Bill Ritter instead of me. I never thought at six foot five that it would be fun to fly and coach back and forth to Washington (laughs) all the time. And I did have my sights set on the Denver DA's office. And Joe Rogers was a part of all that. Diana DeGette ends up edging out Doug Friednash for the primary win. And she's gone on to hold it for decades. I knew Diana at Colorado College, the great school that I went to for my college education. So I'm really proud of Diana DeGette. And I don't know Joe Nagus near as well, but he's always great to talk to. And he's a CU law guy. And I'm proud as hell of Joe Nagus as well. What about you? Oh, yeah. Joe Nagoose. And we've only met once in passing, so I don't know him well, but he's impressive. I've seen him many times and his presentation is impressive. I mean, that was one of the things that I was so critical of, of both of the impeachments was some of these presentations. I get that there's the political court of public opinion, but there's just so much evidence that I think on both sides, they could have really 
focus it or whatever. But my point is Jonah Goose is he's been really impressive. He seems very humble which you don't see much anymore. So yeah, he, it's been a real pleasure. But yeah, Joe Rogers, Craig, when he decided to run, he had been, I think, working on that seat for a couple of years, kind of behind the scenes. So he definitely had a game plan to run against Pat Schroeder. And he was this, you know, black Republican. And that's not common. That was not well received. And he knew, you know, he needed. Um, but it was by you. What was that? Your Jeffco upbringing or what? <laughs> no, it was Joe himself. And it wasn't just me. For example, I mean, I was with Joe. I was the chief legal counsel and deputy campaign manager. So basically I was doing whatever Joe needed me to do, basically. And so I drove him around and I was at a lot of the functions with him. And I saw how, like, I remember when he went to speak to the ministerial alliance and, you know, they were the Denver Metro Ministerial Alliance, a group of strong black pastors that have historically, you know, they carry a lot of uh, a lot of influence, I guess. And so they all really didn't give him a chance. He came into the meeting. They were all had their arms folded. You know, they were not very receptive. And by the end of the hour and a half meeting, he had gotten their endorsement. It may not have been right that moment, but he he ultimately got their endorsement. And that happened throughout the black community, really, was that people said, you know, look, I know Joe. I know what he's about. And I talked to Joe about being a black Republican a lot. And his point was, he said, look, black people are almost exclusively in the Democrat Party. And he said, look, what happened in 94 with the Republican Revolution and Newt Gingrich, he said, when the Republicans essentially took over Congress, he said black people as a block lost all their power. And he's basically like, we need to be everywhere, you know, and I agree with that. But that presupposes that there is a common interest in the upliftment of the community as a whole, which, you know, Joe was about, you know, he was about pushing everybody up. But that was an objective of his. And it made sense that we need to be everywhere. And so a lot of people he converted and a lot of people he didn't. You know, we lost the election. I think, as I recall, you know, Diana DeGette, I think she was in the state house at the time when she decided to run. Right. And I think he, you know, as, as I recall the, the strategy and the numbers, if, if he had went against Pat Schroeder and I know Pat Schroeder was beloved. I think it might have been a different race, you know, and some people will just shoot back at me that, hey, no, no Republicans going to win Denver. And, you know, and, and that may be true, but we could think about it then. And the Republican Party was different. If you remember, Bob Dole was the candidate and at that GOP convention. He said, hey, if you're a racist, just get the hell out of here. He was unequivocal in condemning that. And it was a different party as recently as when Romney and Ryan were the standard bearers. But right now, the GOP is resembling a little like the KKK. Who would want to be a member of it? People are fleeing them in droves because they've bent over and capitulated to a racist Donald Trump. It's not good for America. And that's why this guy needs to be held accountable by Bonnie Willis or the American Southern people. District in New York. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. But the American people, thank God. Thank God the American people stood up. The people in Georgia stood up. Thank God it wasn't a closer election where this big lie. Boy, does it bother me. And when I say big lie, I'm talking about the Third Reich that killed six million of my people. 
these kind of big lies are destructive to societies. I completely agree. Now the language is being backed up with this action and energy, and, and it's becoming intense. I mean, last four years, I completely felt this energy. I mean, just in general, there was such an angst and just so much tension. And this, honestly, I, I'm a fan of more political parties that are actually viable that, rather than just Republican and Democrats. And, and this may be the, the time. I mean, of course, there's, there's talk about the Patriot Party, and, and which I would be fine with, because then we definitely know <laughs> who's, who's standing for yeah, what. But I, we, don't, you know, I mean, I went to George Washington. I am a patriot. God, they perverted that word. And you know, when he praises these insurrectionists, he calls them patriots. I want to punch him in the face. Oh, I'm sorry. If I was on Twitter, I'd get kicked off. But Donald Trump animates me, and I, I'm at a point where, you know, if you're a Trump sycophant, I've got no time for you. Somebody on Twitter put, I'm never going to support any of these people who vote for acquittal again. It's almost like racism. It's not enough to not be a racist. You have to be anti-racist. And I think I tweeted, that's not strong enough. We have to actively oppose these people like Ted Cruz and John Cornyn, and all these people who, who have to know better. My God, they have the same legal education you and I do. No, it's, it's scary, the division and how, I mean, the Senate and these, these guys are completely making decisions on politics. I mean, that's why Mitt Romney has become like, that's, you know, it takes moral courage. And it's disappointing how aggressive and how easy it is to get you know, folks on the attack like this guy. I mean, maybe it'll mellow out now that he doesn't have a Twitter account. But that was just scary. The way that these folks would just follow his lead and, you know, you have death threats and everything else. And there's more of this type of fanaticism uh, coming in, like Lauren Boebert uh, coming into Congress. I mean, that is, you know, regardless of your politics, if you just look at her Twitter or listen to anything she says, it's anger and she's against the Democrats. I mean, it's just so, I mean, those are, yeah, it's just so aggressive. She's trying to out Trump Trump. So how do you deal with it? It's interesting because my other guest is Ian Silveri, who was so adamant against Trump. He messed with some pictures at the Capitol and Nine News let him go. You know, anybody in the business, it's like football. You're hired to be fired, but you've lasted a while at Nine News with my buddy Scott Robinson, who's also been in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge several times. We're going to get you back. You're great. But tell me your attitude when you do Nine News. What are you trying to give the viewer? And do you kind of stay away from controversy on social media because you can't afford to do it as part of Nine News? Wow, that's a great question. Honestly, my approach, I don't stay away from social media, but I don't engage like I used to because I'm so protective of my energy right now. And we spend so much energy in these situations where we've never even met these people. We never will meet them. These aren't productive. Nobody's trying to actually engage in any real conversation. So to me, the intensity is just it's just gotten too much. And maybe you're hearing this theme of me saying, look, 
we need to just lower the temperature. And I'm not saying, hey, we need to find common ground with white nationalists or things like that. I'm saying that nobody's listening right now. Everybody is just yelling. And it could be the platform because everything's in a soundbite, you know, and, and there's so much distance, obviously, that we're all, you know, there's all these studies about how our social media, we're, we're in an echo chamber, right? We just keep getting fed, you know, our own worldview in a more amplified way. And so everybody's really outrageous. And so to answer your question, how I approach the segments on Nine News is I actually try to, one, because I go by myself, I, I don't take a hard position on one side or another. Most things you can kind of tell where where I'm at, but I do try to come at least down the middle. And really what I try to do is just get people to consider a perspective. And so I try to just be a little provocative and say, here's what you should go and read and then make your decision. And a, and a classic example is you mentioned it stealing the vote and the, the election was rigged and all this. And this is what I really and I hope people start to do this because we are a country of law and order. And the law and order stems from the judicial branch of the government. You know, that's where we get the laws. And in a country that's of law and order, if you feel that there was fraud, widespread fraud, any kind of fraud, you do have a venue and that venue is the courts. And here's what everybody is missing because Trump is such a manipulator of communication. And honestly, because he's so effective as a bully pulpit, he just hammered home for months and months that it was widespread fraud. And so people just started repeating the soundbite. But what they didn't do was really look at what happened in court. So the Republicans, Donald Trump, his team, everybody who was contesting the results of the election, they brought their cases to court and they went. And this is really important because I know it's become white noise, but that is the venue where an independent judge is going to look at the evidence and say yes or no. And some of these got appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court, which contains three <laughs> Trump appointees and the Supreme Court rejected it. And so it's important to understand, one, the courts completely resolved these issues, overwhelmingly rejecting the claims. But secondly, and I, I want people, I'd say, go look at the court orders. It's very easy. You can Google and, and find the actual orders from the judges in, I think, 68 different cases. And what you'll find is that they, in most of these instances, didn't even allege fraud. They attacked these minor technical procedures. You know, we weren't close enough to view in Pennsylvania, so they did move them from 25 feet to six feet away. And then, you know, others, uh, it was just these they minor things. They in Detroit. They cheated us in Atlanta with the water leak. And it always right. was cities dominated by African-Americans. Like, oh, of that's course. where the cheating is going on. But when they went into court, they didn't even argue, hey, fraud. And here's a classic example. Rudy Giuliani had the, the crazy press conference, and he said, I can prove fraud 17 different ways or 16 different ways. And within, I think, 48 hours, he was in court. This is all public knowledge. You can read the transcript. And the judge said, are you specifically pleading fraud? 
And he said, no, Your Honor, we're not pleading fraud at this time. And in Pennsylvania, they got drummed out by Trump-appointed judges. And I think the only fraud that really exists is that hair dye product that Rudy Giuliani got sold for his bald head. Because <laughs> that, that was not a good look. <laughs> Craig, why didn't the people who were at the press conference, you know, go over and hand him a cup of water and whisper in his ear, you know, hey, man, you're you're dripping. Nobody or wants something. to get close to that. Are you kidding? <laughs> He's got to smell funny too. Remember when he farted in front of Jenna Ellis, who I know well, I... <laughs> and a Colorado lawyer who's disgraced herself. But you know, I, I'm just saying at Nine News, you got to be aware that they want to sell soap to everybody in Colorado, and you're talking to the people in Jefferson County and where Lauren Boebert got voted in. So. They don't want controversy in Nine News. Marty Coniglio has been my guest, and he went off on Trump. I want you to keep your job, Whitney, because I want you to keep coming back to the Craig's Lawyers Lounge as the Nine News legal expert. You are a hoot to talk to. Your final thoughts on this Trump impeachment trial? What do you think the long-term ramifications are? One thing before I answer that, I do want to clarify that, and I, I understand what you're saying about Nine News, but I have to, uh, I have had a phenomenal experience. Nobody's ever told me keep it down the middle. So no, I can definitely speak freely, but as an analyst, I do try to at least present both sides. But in doing so, I'm really challenging folks to really look at, like, you know, hey, go back and look at the court pleadings and understand they actually didn't think it was widespread fraud because they didn't, you know, they didn't uh, uh, actually allege that or plead that in court. As as an older guy who had your job on a different station, I would not advise that you tweet the way I do because it's going to aggravate people or host a podcast like this where really one of the reasons I do it is to expose Donald Trump and Trumpism and hope for a better day where people get along and this country can come together. No, indeed. And and I don't have a Twitter account. So thank goodness. Yeah, you don't want me doing spur of the moment type things like that. But with that said, my overall thought on the impeachment is it should happen. I mean, in my opinion, the evidence is overwhelming. You know, I think they're presenting it well and they laid the evidence out. I do think it's relevant because, you know, the impeachment has even for a former president, because there's there's three aspects, the uh, the impeachment itself from the House, then the conviction from the, the Senate and then the disqualification. So, you know, the people arguing it's unconstitutional are saying, well, uh, they shouldn't be able to um, uh, impeach him. He's already out of office. That was the point. And I said, well, no, there's the other aspect of the the conviction and the possible disqualification. So those are relevant. And, you know, with the conviction, it will take 17 Republicans, as we know, but the the disqualification is just a simple majority. So I think it's relevant. And the other thing is, and I think there's going to be, you mentioned Fannie Willis, but there's also in the Southern District of New York and other places, they're really putting together. That's where taxes were an issue. And there's so many it seems like the evidence on the financial crimes is pretty overwhelming, and it sounds like they may be pursuing that relatively soon. But the other thing is, you know, I tell my students this all the time, the last four years, the way that Trump has kind of pushed in every way, 
has, although it's been chaotic and, and very stressful, in a lot of ways it's been helpful for us to sort of shape and define the democracy because we don't have a lot of precedent in these situations. And so this is actually helping to shape that precedent and give us, you know, this is how the, the democracy evolves, you know, and this is how it was intended to evolve. You know, this is why we have separate branches of government and the, the check and balance. And, you know, now the people are, are really involved. So I think the notion that we're testing out these waters and, for example, like, you know, I know Trump was so he just pushed the executive branch so far. And especially, I mean, we saw it with all the way to physical violence. And so now I suspect, like, when you get that close to the edge, that there's going to be, you know, laws and we're going to evolve so that we can. There's going to be a reaction. There's got to be. And you could say, well, then the pendulum will swing too far. It cannot swing too far away from Donald Trump. It just can't. He is the personification of the worst president we've ever had. And I'll leave it to, uh, you know, Liz Cheney said it. What he did was the worst act in the history of the presidency. And he's a bad person. There I said it. Whitney Trailer, what a thrill to talk to you. Let's stay in touch. And I admire what you do because you do a lot of different things. You teach at Metro. You're a practicing lawyer. You work in Nine News. I love a guy who cobbles together a lot of different things. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. And it's been great. I mean, it really has. I mean, one of the things is the keyboard warriors, when they put the videos up and the keyboard warriors come out and, and it's just folks are really, I don't know if folks are not feeling heard, but there's a lot of, there's just a lot of angst. And I'm so glad to see so much activism and, and push for more justice and, and some of these systems are, are seemingly starting to come down. And I'm, I mean, it, it's an exciting time and it's an exciting time to communicate, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one or, or in these kind of venues about these things. Cause we, we just can't be isolated in our own worldview. I mean, we just have to, you know, have to open up. And so hopefully, uh, as, as, you know, Biden comes in and the temperature goes down a little bit, people can start, you know, moving in that direction to right. just start understanding each other a little yeah, bit. Yeah, with a little bit of a vaccine. Hey, that Donald Trump did a great job with COVID. Now, Denny, let's not even <laughs> go there. <laughs> well, it's amazing how everything seems to have just picked up in like the last three right. weeks. And, it's, you know, it's, it's like. It's called planning. Hey, get it together. Right. It's not enough to oh, come up God. with the vaccine. You got to distribute it. Anyway, now I'm getting worked up again. Just when I'm thinking. Gosh, this Whitney Trailer is a great lawyer because he's calm, he's level-headed. What a great influence. Whitney, thanks a lot for coming into Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, and let's stay in touch, okay? Will do. Thank you so much for having me. Take care, Craig. Okay, bye now. <laughs> All right. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart 
smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Craig. Troubadour. How are you? Fantastic. Well, that's great to hear. I love your song, Some Days. Tell everybody what inspired this. Well, actually, that song was inspired by an injury I had to my hand. So it was kind of written in a cryptic manner, but at the time I was working in the garage and I, and I hurt my hand pretty bad. And I came up with this song. Some days just start out bad. <laughs> so that was the real intent of the song, although I find that it applies to other situations as well. Absolutely. And the music is a little different. Do I hear a squeeze box? Is that an accordion yes, at the start? It is. I played an accordion to kind of give it that drone sound. It's beautiful. And I'm a little hurt because I'm hearing a male backup singer. And you know, I thought I was the guy. And I know that's not me. That's my buddy T, my longtime music partner. I met him when we were 17 in Farron Hall. University of Colorado, we've been buddies ever since. And this particular song, he was around, he sang backup. I love it. And one of the most powerful words in a courtroom, and I think a lot about courtrooms, I used to prosecute people. It is most offensive for somebody to be involved in an act of betrayal. And you have the word betrayal in there. That's a powerful word. What were you thinking about there? I kind of, I think maybe just betrayal of my good fortune. Right. But like so many things that happened to us in the form of accidents, we were given warnings. And I, I felt like I hadn't, you know, read the signs or, or I hadn't paid attention to the signs. Oh, no. I said, if I have been betrayed, I only have myself to blame. That's the statement there. I love that. That's the worst kind of betrayal, self-betrayal, right? Yes, I suppose. But you always have interesting ways to express things. I like the line about, hey, let me wake up in 100 days. What, take a pill and just right. wake up in 100 days. Everything will be okay. I think a lot of people are thinking about yes. that kind of concept with this pandemic. Right. So true. It's like you just want to, there's a period in our lives that we go through where we just wish we could go to sleep and wake up when things have improved. Yeah, the pandemic definitely, I've thought of that since. And now we have the polar freeze on top of it. It's not even good walking weather for us. You have that line about a long, cold journey through the night. Yeah. How do you yeah. deal with the cold? I ring my neighbors and a good friend, Craig Silverman's doorbell and i said you want to go for a walk which i'm going to do later don't let the fact that it's zero degrees thwart us all Craig. right i'll be this there. is a challenge this is a challenge now i have to ask in terms of the quality music that comes in this song some days who is doing that rocking guitar solo oh well that's me i'm, I'm doing all the guitar I, I do all the guitar work Wow, that is rocking. 
is that one of your favorite? I know you love to sing, but this is extraordinary guitar playing. This song is one of Lisa's favorites. She she likes the beat of this song and the drive, and I guess the guitar too. But uh, yeah, I love I love I love playing on the rockers, Craig. And even better when the, when live music comes about again, I I can't wait to get together with my buddies and rock out in someone's living room or on a stage or wherever whoever will have us. And we should point out that Lisa is your beautiful wife of how many years now? Twenty five. 25 and a half. But think back, or even during the last 25 years, when you really rock out with that guitar lick, it turns the women on. Am I right? <laughs> You'll have to ask the women. It doesn't do that much for me, but I've seen women just think, wow, I wish I could play the guitar like Dave Gunders. Let's let everybody listen. Thank you, Troubadour. Thanks, Craig. Take care.
my practice of law, Michael Bailey, decisions are often left to a personal representative. God forbid a person gets killed. That's an important decision you can make ahead of time. Who is going to be your personal representative? What is your advice in that regard? So you want to pick somebody as a personal representative who has several qualities. Number one, you want them to kind of have a good sense of financial stuff and and matters like that so they can they can deal with that. You know, I have a friend who's really, really good and really, really smart and is scared to death to fill out a tax form because they don't quite, just the finances don't make sense to them. So you don't want to pick that type of person. You want to pick somebody who can understand finances. You want to pick somebody who's trustworthy, who will carry out your decisions. And if you can do it, you want to pick somebody who's not afraid of people not liking them or getting their feelings hurt. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. This is a treat. Ian Silveri is one of the most interesting political figures in Colorado. He burst on this scene not that long ago. You can read him as a columnist in the Denver Post. You can listen to him on his own podcast. It's a thrill to have you on, Ian Silveri. Thanks, Craig Silverman. Appreciate the invitation. Great to talk to you. Tell everybody your story. Where did you grow up and how did you get to Colorado? My goodness. So I'll try and make this as brief as possible. I was born in Brooklyn and grew up in New Jersey in a little town called East Brunswick. My dad sold lamps in New York City. My mom is a dental hygienist. My mother's parents are both Holocaust survivors. They were from Lodz, Poland, and were kidnapped and brought to Bergen-Belsen work camp and then shipped off to the Auschwitz death camp. But fortunately, they were liberated before they were executed, whereas some of their siblings, unfortunately, and their parents were not. So we lost a lot of family in the Holocaust. My father's family is from Italy. My great-grandpa came two generations ago. And the reason why I have a second I in my last name at the end is because when Vincenzo Silveri, with one eye, left Orsagna, Italy, and came into Washington, D.C., the typewriter skipped and added an extra I to his last name. He decided he wasn't going to mess with that, so he changed his signature, which you can see on the exit paperwork from Italy and the entrance paperwork to the U.S., to have another I in our last name. And that's how we ended up called this. So I grew up, I was like a little like skate punk. My friends and I would like go and like skateboard and rollerblade in the parks around our houses. And we'd always get kind of like in trouble with the local cops or the local park rangers or whomever. And it turned out that my next door neighbor was this woman, Meryl Asaro, who went on to be a state representative, but at the time was a city councilor in East Brunswick, New Jersey. So I went to Merrill and I said, hey, her kid, Rob Angelo, is actually the secretary of labor of the state of New Jersey right now, funny enough. But I knocked on her door and I said, hey, we got lacrosse fields, we got soccer fields, we got tracks, we got football fields. We don't have anywhere for my friends and me to skate, to do our thing. And she said, well, why don't you come down to the city council and make your case and maybe we'll build one. And I said, that's all you got to do? And she said, that's all you got to do. So my friend Anthony and I went and we came up with a plan and we went and did research at the library. This was before the Internet. And we brought a bunch of plans down to city council and they built the thing. And that was like a weird lesson for like a talkative 13 year old to learn at that point in my life, which was if you get into the right room with the right people and say the right things, things will change. So, okay, flash forward, I graduate high school, I go to Rutgers University, I studied philosophy and religion. 
luckily for me at the time, Rutgers had adopted other universities' philosophy departments, made a major investment, and we had become like the best philosophy department in the English-speaking world. And people say, philosophy, why'd you do that? Isn't that just a bunch of sitting around talking about unanswerable questions and pontificating and maybe like smoking a bit too much weed? And while that is part of it, philosophy teaches you how to win arguments. And that's what I thought was really interesting about it because it's logic, it's fallacies, it's rules, it's structure. And ultimately, it's the ability to see every side of an argument. I had a great constitutional law professor who said, if you can't argue wrongly as you can argue the position that you agree with, you don't actually understand the issue. So I took that to heart. So in 2006, my friends and I were on a road trip and I kind of ran out of money. And through a series of hitchhiking and, and Greyhound buses and all sorts of misadventure, I ended up hanging out with my friend Sarah in Boulder, Colorado, where she was a student at CU. She was doing an internship through this organization at the time called the White House Project with, at the time, State Representative Judy Solano of Adams County. Sarah took me to a fundraiser at Judy's house. I went into the backyard. She stood up and held up this quilt and showed everybody this, this beautiful quilt that her former students, I think she was like a fourth or fifth grade teacher, they had all stayed friends and they made it for her when they all graduated high school. And she stood up and she said, this is why I do this. This is why I'm running for office. This is what I want to do. And, you know, politicians, this was like George W. Bush era. So I wasn't like very enthusiastic about government or politics at the time. But she like made me believe. I thought to myself, like, okay, this one's for real. So what I did was I decided I was going to see if I could get a job in our campaign or volunteer or something. I said, I'm pretty good with computers. I'm not afraid of talking to people. Whatever you need, I'll do. And she actually hired me and put me to work in her campaign for that summer. I had to go back to college and, and graduate. So I left about August, went back to Jersey, graduated, but she won that race. And after I graduated from Rutgers, I called her up and I said, hey, Judy, I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. I'm thinking about moving to Colorado. She says, great. We'll get you an entry-level job in the Capitol or run in a state house race or something like that, and we'll do our best to get you a gig. I said, okay. So I packed all my stuff into my car, which is a 2001 Dodge Intrepid. My friend Courtney once said it drive like a dinner cruise, and I drove out to Colorado. Moved to Boulder, moved into a little apartment on like 30th and Colorado, and got an internship at the state capitol and got a campaign with the Colorado Democratic Party. I ran Gwen Green's re-election effort in 2008. That was my first campaign I ran by myself, which was at the time the district was Golden and North Lakewood. And weirdly enough, now my wife and I live <laughs> in what was formerly that district, which is just a very strange thing. And your wife is... My wife is State Senator Brittany Pedersen of Lakewood. She was a state rep, got elected for the first time in 2012, got reelected twice, and then was part of the 2018 wave that took the Senate for Democrats and created the Democratic trifecta that we now see today. Anyway, long story short, I had a bunch of jobs in the Capitol. I had a bunch of jobs in the state party. We lost the majority. We got the majority back. We almost lost the majority. And then in 2016, in June, I left the Capitol and took over Progress Now. It's an organization that's been around for about 17 years. We do political communications. We were always sort of like a small, punchy, stunt-oriented group. We used to do things like fly planes with banners around Broncos Stadium or Sports Authority Field or Invesco or whatever it was called, whenever it was called, that said John McCain is a Raiders fan and do all those sorts of like stunts. And when I took over, we were having the same kind of fun, but then the 2016 election happened and Donald Trump got elected. And all of a sudden, the jokes stopped being funny. 
So we circled up and figured out what we were going to do for the next couple of years in order to get Colorado and hopefully the rest of the country back on the right track. And in my opinion, that's away from Trumpism. And we got to work holding Cory Gardner accountable, holding Mike Kaufman accountable, ensuring that we could flip the state Senate and make sure progressives were in charge, making sure we could keep the governor's mansion after Hickenlooper was done. And since that time, Colorado has continued to see a big progressive evolution, which leads me to this week, earlier on Monday, I announced that over the course of the next couple of months, I will be stepping down from this job because on one hand, I accomplished most of what I set out to do here. And on the other, I think it's time for somebody else from the movement to get up on the platform, frame the spotlight on them, and they get to speak for the progressive movement in Colorado for the foreseeable future. I've done my thing. I had a great time. It was awesome. And now I get to spend time talking to you. Mazel tov on a job well done. Now you can go to law school because you are a natural. Look at you. You speak like it's second nature. I think you would love it. See you law schools right in Boulder, Colorado. Well, I appreciate it. My mother would be very happy to hear you say that. But I think I found the line of work for me. If it's not this specific job, it is in the general category of helping progressives win, helping progressive issues win, and especially fighting off the creeping fascism that we have seen from the right wing that culminated in horror and death on January 6th. All right, let me take your mother's side, okay? And I think we might be related. What was your maternal name? <laughs> Rubner is my, my mother's maiden name is Rubner. Three of my four grandparents were born in America, two of them in Denver, but one grandpa, my grandpa Sam, came from Lodz, the same You're kidding me. Same community in the Pale of Settlement. And look at how much we have in common. Wow, that is very weird. That First is very of all, weird. we're both married to beautiful blonde ladies. Let's acknowledge yes, that. Yes, sir. Second yep. of all, we're members of the same tribe, although Silverman is much more obviously Jewish than Silveri. Most people must not realize you're a Jewish guy. Well, my dad wasn't Jewish, actually. He was raised Roman Catholic, and he converted to Judaism in his early 20s in order to marry my mother. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah so Silveri is a Roman Catholic last name. Right, my wife was raised Roman Catholic, and she converted to marry me in Denver, Colorado. How do you handle that as a family now? So Davis, our son, had a bris and is being raised Jewish, even though Brittany is not Jewish. When we decided we were going to have kids, I asked her, hey, this matters a lot to me because of what happened to my grandparents and happened to their family. And I care a lot about it. I don't go to temple that often. I'm not like super religious, but I'm very culturally Jewish. I care a lot about our heritage and I care a lot about our history. And I care a lot about making sure that what happened to my grandparents never, ever, ever happens again. And I look at Davis as proof that we won, that three generations later, there are still Jews in America. We can be proud of who we are and where we come from. And we're even different than we used to be in terms of who your mother has to be, what kind of ritual you have to go through, what kind of temple you have to belong to, et cetera, et cetera. There are probably plenty of people who wouldn't count him because his mother is not Jewish. And as you know, and your listeners probably do too, Judaism is a matriarchal religion. It goes down on the mom's side. But the temple that we belong to, uh, Temple Emmanuel, said that he's in the community and so is your family. That's where my parents were married. And now let me channel my own mother and just say the test will be 
if Davis gives a bar mitzvah and a bris to his son, God willing, down the road. But I really love it that you're willing to talk about this candid sort of stuff. Of all the topics on talk radio, the one that was dicey is intermarriage. But it happens all around us. And look at Kamala Harris and Doug Emhoff. That's the first Jewish guy who's been that close to power in the White House. Of course, Joe Lieberman won the popular vote. But it's amazing to think about these things. And I was raised to think about these things. Yeah, me too. And there's a difference between diversity and inclusion and equity and intermarriage and and erasing or doing your best to dismantle the oppressive and racist and anti-Semitic and sexist and bigoted systems of the past and pretending that they don't exist. You can still acknowledge that people are different and come from different backgrounds and different ethnicities, but recognize that we're all equal at the same time. Once that happens, society-wide, and we saw this for the last four years pretty in our face, but certainly all of America's history has been wrapped up in racism and white supremacy, that we saw it and the country actually rejected, at least the majority of us, and this time (laughs) in the geographical places that matter. So it was still too close for comfort. There were still 70 million plus people, including a lot of folks in Colorado, who thought Donald Trump was doing great, saw everything he said and did over the last four years and said, that guy deserves another four. So we have plenty of work to do. But you're really interesting to me, too, because you're very conservative, or maybe you were and you're not anymore. I'd like to hear about that, actually. And you saw Trump and said, absolutely not. (laughs) No matter what your politics are, no matter what your policy preferences are, this guy does not belong in the White House at the Resolute Desk in the Oval Office. Why did that happen to you? That's fascinating, your perception of me, which I'm not saying is wrong, but I hate being called conservative, and I'm not liberal. I'm independent. I actually ran for Denver DA in 1996 as an independent, obviously didn't get elected, but I've drifted. I voted for Barack Obama, and then I voted for Mitt Romney. And sad to say, and I would not admit it, but for the fact I did it in public, I did vote for Donald Trump. And I did believe that Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton had become too corrupt. And I thought that Trump might be a New York type moderate. Boy, was I wrong. And once perceiving, and Charlottesville was a big breaking point, Kyle Clark heard me ripping Trump over that, and he had me on Nine News. And I expressed myself. He said, Silverman's a prominent Jew in Denver. See, when your name's Silverman, everybody knows it. (laughs) And how do you feel about what Trump said and did, which was the subject of the impeachment trial? I said, I didn't like it. And of course, he had some wiggle words the next day, but then he took those back. I remember the sequence of events. But anyway, I'd love to go under the knife by you. My life's sort of an open book, but Let's talk about Ian Silveri. Let me tell you how else you and I might be related. We're both columnists, you with the Denver Post, me with the Colorado Sun, and we both have podcasts. Tell everybody where they can hear you regularly. Is that going to continue now that you're gone from progress now? 
I think so. And I'm not gone yet. We still got an ED search to do. We got a lot of training to do. I've got to write everything down that I did over the last four and a half years because I kind of just did it and didn't do that. But you can read the column in the Denver Post every other Sunday and you can find our podcast, which is called the Get More Smarter Show on coloradopolls.com and at getmoresmarter.com and on Spotify and Stitcher and iTunes and anywhere you get podcasts. It's once a week, me and Jason Bain, who is the lead writer at coloradopolls.com, which is a progressive blog that's been around forever. We get on there, we discuss current events, we discuss the political goings on in Colorado. And most importantly, and we're fortunate that we have a lot of friends in the business, we get to interview elected officials and candidates and leaders a lot. So the episode that came out last week, we had now Speaker of the State House, Alec Garnett. We actually used to do a joint podcast with him that we called the Smart Alec Show and the Get More Smarter Show. We've been doing that for a long time. We were on our 65th episode that we just released this last week. And we're looking forward to doing some more during the legislative session where people actually tend to tune in a little bit more because we're able to take the really complicated, wonky policy issues and debates and kind of boil it down to here's what's really going on. That's the idea behind it. All right. Now you're bragging. I had Alec Garnett on (laughs) several times on my radio show and recently on my podcast with his papa, Stan Garnett, who I trained in the Denver DA's office. And you bring up Jason Bain. Jason Bain is the son of Vicky Bain, who used to work for People Magazine and called me about Jean Benet when she wanted colorful quotes. So I know Jason Bain. I know all you guys. You just told me something about my co-host that I did not know. <laughs> That's amazing. You didn't know Jason's no. mom, Vicky? I did not. Famous writer? Jason Bain just kind of was here when I got here in, as a Jefferson County institution in the 06, 07, 08 years. And I did not know that about him. I'm going to have to ask him some more questions. <laughs> no, but Vicki Bain was fantastic. That's why People Magazine hired her. She worked for other big publications. But I want to go back to you being Jewish because I had no idea until you wrote a powerful column about it. Was that after the Tree of Life massacre? It was actually after... It was actually the Tree of Life massacre because after that moment, a bunch of other anti-Semitic actions and events and vandalisms and, and, and harassment started happening all over the country. The Anti-Defamation League releases a report every year about what kind of anti-Semitic things they're seeing. The Southern Poverty Law Center you know, releases reports every time there's a new hate group, especially, you know, and those that focus primarily on anti-Semitism. It was just this like overall boiling up of this stuff that we saw from Trump tweeting a Jewish star with a pile of money during the 2016 campaign to Charlottesville, those Nazis marching around with the tiki torches saying Jews will not replace us, which is a common white supremacist myth about what they refer to as white genocide, which is one of the you know most horrific racist things you can think about. And then at that point, it was after Tree of Life and it was after just increasing incidences. There was that guy in Pueblo that was going to blow up the Temple Emanuel down there. And then they found the guy from Adam Waffen Division living in public housing in Denver. It was all around that same time these things started cropping up. And like I said, you know, I'm the evidence, I'm the proof that Hitler's and the Nazis' plan didn't work. And so is my kid. And so is my life. And it's hard because people send me weird stuff in the mail and say nasty things about me. And I've 
trained myself not to read the comment section of the Denver Post too much, but I can't help myself sometimes. And oftentimes the attacks against me are anti-Semitic in nature. Not all the time. Sometimes people are just calling me a commie or a leftist or a, or a pinko or something like that. But more often than maybe you would think, it, it comes with the anti-Semitism too. Gosh. I mean, the Denver Post is a great platform. It makes me thrilled that the Colorado Sun doesn't have a commentary section. That's a wise choice on their behalf. I think the Denver Post turned theirs off for a couple of years, maybe months, if I recall correctly. But now it's there, and it's something that I, I try not to pay too much attention to. Although the last few columns I've written have had quite the response. I actually was over at my friend Blake's house the other day, and, and his mom came out. I hadn't seen her in a while. It was his birthday, so we were all doing like social distance drinks on the porch. And she said, hey, I really like your columns. I read them every Sunday. And I go, yeah, that's like one of the two reactions that I get. The other one is, you're a hack <laughs> and a bunch of invectives and all this stuff. And, and what I find to be really interesting is that when I write about racism, when I write about white supremacy, and when I write about equity and, and equality and anti-racism, that's when I get the most angry comments. <laughs> Figure that out. I wonder how many times in your life people have made anti-Semitic statements not realizing that you are a Jew. Does that happen to you? You have no idea. So it's amazing that you brought that up because one of my first memories in Boulder was I went to some house party. It was like 2007. I knew a couple people. I was just like making friends. It was kind of in my neighborhood. There were these two guys kind of like screwing around each other, roughhousing in the living room. And they were like fighting over like a sandwich, like a, like a sub or something. And this one guy pushed the other guy and he goes, hey, man, don't Jew me out of that sandwich. And I grew up in New Jersey, I grew up in a very diverse community. Black friends, Asian friends, lots of Jewish, very multicultural, very multi-ethnic. I had never heard the word Jew used as a verb before in my entire life. And I was 21 at this point. And it hit me right there, and it's happened a few other times before and since, that you're right, that I don't, I don't look Jewish. <laughs> There's stereotypes and stuff out there. I'm not orthodox. I'm not very conservative, so I don't you know, dress traditionally. I'm a 35-year-old guy, and I look like a 35-year-old guy. Right, and when somebody says, this is Ian Silveri, people think you're Italian, which you are. Yeah, if they think at all. They certainly don't think necessarily that I'm Jewish, and and that's another reason why I like to talk about it, because I'm proud of it, because I think it's important for people to know that we're out here, we're effective, we're working in politics, we do every job on the planet. And despite our small numbers, our contribution to the world has been, I think, in many ways, disproportionately good. All right, let's get back to our mothers, because... <laughs> What are you doing with your life, Ian? You did a good job at Progress Now. Law school is still a possibility. You're a young man. You'll be a lawyer by the time Davis is in kindergarten, right? You may do it in a couple of years. <laughs> and you need to make a nice living. I know Brittany has a great job, but how do you work? How do you support yourself? What is the plan? Well, I'm still going to be here for the foreseeable future. So at least until the summer, maybe the fall, just depending on what they need out of me. It's a great question. I don't really know. I'm primarily focused on making sure that we have a good hiring process and a good transition. That's my job right now. Getting the word out on Monday, it's been really nice. A lot of people have reached out to me and asked me what am I doing next and if I was going to be a consultant, would I want to work with them? And 
I'm considering that too. I've, I've got my mind open and I, I think I'm fortunate enough and privileged enough to have my options open. So now that the word is out that I'm no longer going to be running progress now, people who may have been interested in working with me have come to me, are coming to me, and hopefully will come to me and give me some ideas. All right. I'll give you ideas. I'm channeling your mother. You were rejecting law school. <laughs> what about yourself a candidate? Isn't your wife in your oh, second no, no, time? no, 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 no. Yes, yes. Like, oh, no, no, no. I am much, much better. And I realize this is progress now, ED, when I have to be on doing press and getting on radio shows and podcasts and all this stuff. I am much more comfortable and happy behind the scenes helping out someone else to be the elected official. I was the chief of staff to the Speaker of the House in Colorado for a couple of years. That's what I'm good at. That's why I enjoy doing. And the reason why I don't actually think that I should run for office or be a good candidate is that despite being the Jewish grandson of Holocaust survivors, which I think is an important story and an important perspective that doesn't have a ton of representation out there in the world, there are more interesting people who have gone through worse struggles and have faced larger amounts of obstacles and oppression who I think are actually more interesting and more qualified and should be in office certainly before people like me. And it's the job and responsibility and obligation of people like me to help other people who have faced barriers actually attain elective office so that they can bring their perspectives. Like the reason why Brittany is an excellent state senator is because her life was kind of rough growing up. Her mom is a recovering heroin addict. That's a very public story. People know that's why she works in the opioid epidemic. She's faced monumental challenges. She couldn't get loans. She had to put herself through school, waiting tables. All of those perspectives, all those experiences that she had informed her worldview and showed her the cracks and the breaks in the system that needs repairing. Despite my occasional incidences of people saying mean things to me, the system was designed to work very, very well for me. And quite frankly, it has. So I think it's not my responsibility to put myself on a piece of mail and a ballot and go get elected and put a title in front of my name. It's my job to use my talents and skills and experience to help other people who have different life experiences in areas that need most urgent addressing to help them get elected. That's how I see it. Is that your plan to be a political pro? There are some superstars who make good money doing that. Are you available for a hire? If a politician wants to run for the state Senate, should they give you a call? Depends on the politician. Fortunately, on the Democratic side of things, at least, and Republicans tend not to call me and ask me for my advice, although some do every now and again. It's not my main source of requests. But fortunately, Democrats have a really good what we call caucus operation. So the people who work with House and Senate candidates and help them get elected, quite frankly, and I've said this publicly for years, I had that job. I was the House caucus director. I was the deputy in 2010 and 2012, and now I was the executive director in 2014. And the job is make sure Democrats have a majority in the state house or the state Senate. The Colorado Republican Party doesn't have anything like that. And they haven't ever. I mean, they tried to pop something up in 2014, but it never got the staff or the resources necessary. I think that, among a million other reasons, is a structural and politically competitive reason why Republicans have lost a lot of footing in Colorado's legislature. They don't have dedicated professionals who are helping the candidates and the campaigns out, those guys all work for the super PACs and the 527s and the independent groups, get paid a lot of money and never have to talk to Yeah, but the Republicans have a lousy message and their leader being Donald Trump, he's toxic in Colorado. And 
I would say that has a lot to do with it, too. Right. I mean, <laughs> even you can be the best lawyer and you can't win an unwinnable case. And you can be a great political pro. And can anybody beat Polis or Bennett this go round? Probably not. I mean, here's the interesting thing about 2022 is that we don't have a test case for it. So you go back to 2006, which was when Democrats captured the governor's office, the state house and the state Senate for the first time in modern memory. And you ask, what were the political conditions that led to 2006 working out that way? You had George W. Bush in office, an incredibly unpopular incumbent president. You had the economic nightmare of the recession just getting started. You had all sorts of macro level political forces contributing to it. 2022 <laughs> is a long time away from 2006. And if you just go cycle by cycle, so 08 was an Obama wave, Democrats won everything. 2010 was a backlash, right? And this is how Colorado has been for a really long time. We may overwhelmingly support one party. And then in the midterms, if the people that supported the ones who won in the general stay home, the backlash is really strong. So in 2010, we lost the House. We almost lost the Senate. We almost lost the governor's race. Those were really, really close races. We almost lost the U.S. Senate. In 2012, we won everything. 2014, we lost the state Senate. Senator Udall lost to Cory Gardner. We won the state House. We were unable to beat Mike Kaufman in the sixth. 2016 comes along. Colorado goes for Hillary. We reelect Michael Bennett. And everything is starting to look like it's a Democratic state again. 2018 comes along a huge backlash to Trump. Democrats take over absolutely everything, including the attorney general and the secretary of state, state treasurer, which are offices that we haven't had in a very long time. And then in 2020, we cement all of these gains, a 41-seat majority in the House, a 20-seat majority in the Senate, every statewide constitutional office. And at Jefferson County, which used to be the bellwether county in this state, where all the county commissioners are Democrats, every county office in the entire county is a Democrat, except for the sheriff, because he ran unopposed in 2018. So we're looking at a very different state, but we have never seen a backlash to a backlash. And by that, I mean, 18 was the backlash to Trump. 22 could be the backlash to Biden. The question is, will it be seven points or more, which is the margin that Bill Weiser, Jenna Griswold, and Dave Young won their statewide constitutional offices in 2018 by? there's still going to be a backlash to Trump because he's not going away. And the Senate had a chance to get rid of him. They're not going to take it. But back to 2010, Scott McGinnis made a fool of himself on my radio show. That's what nice. caused him, you know, with that plagiarism <laughs> scandal. The plagiarism stuff. Yeah, the water paper. All right. Mike Litwin called it a me KO because he knocked himself out. <laughs> <was> so <laughs> Own goal. So I do know a way that Michael Bennett could get beat. You want to hear it? Yeah, sure. I'll be sure to let him know, too. It's your wife. Brittany Pedersen could oh, run against yeah. him and take him out in a primary. I doubt it. First of all, little known fact, Brittany Pedersen was the Northwest Denver field director for Michael Bennett's 2010 U.S. Senate race. So we're very close with the Bennett's. They're excellent mentors. Brittany worked in his campaign He's doing a great job for Colorado. There's no reason why Brittany would primary him or anybody, and, and I can prove this. What about finally have a U.S. senator who's other than a dude? It's an absolutely good point, Craig, and something that we must work on. Like, Colorado is so progressive in so many ways. We put queer people and women of color and trans folks in the state legislature. Like, 
the state legislature is like one of the most diverse chambers of government in the entire country here in Colorado, both the House and the Senate. And it's absolutely amazing. But when you look at those top of the ticket statewide, especially federal offices, we've never elected a woman to the U.S. Senate. We've never elected a woman governor of Colorado. So I think Have, has one ever been nominated? Josie Heath was the U.S. Senate nominee, wasn't she? Right. And somebody lost a real close election to Bill Owens. Might have been Gail Shetler. Okay, here's some Colorado trivia for you. Who did the Republicans nominate for the U.S. Senate? A woman. Was it Spradley? Mary Estelle Buchanan, 1980. And she almost beat Harry Hart. (laughs) Before my time. (laughs) She was a pro-choice Republican from Boulder. And she had somehow won in a Democratic year after Watergate. She'd been appointed by John Vanderhoof to take over when the Secretary of State Anderson passed away. And she got appointed and she ran and she won big and she won re-election big. And then she had to fight to get on the ballot. But eventually she was the Republican nominee against Gary Hart and had a pretty good lead in October. That's really interesting. I did not know that. And it's another interesting thing because Republicans had a woman speaker of the House before Democrats did. Dickie Lee Hullinghorst in 2015, my boss in the state legislature, was the first Democratic woman speaker of the House in the state's history. And then Chrysanta Duran came right after her. And then Casey Becker came right after her. And now we have Alec Garnett. So what's interesting about Democrats and progressives is that people think that we play identity politics and we think that people should only be elected if their only qualification is that they're diverse in some way or they're not a you know heterosexual cis white man or something. That's not true. It's who is going to be able to carry the torch for the largest majority of Coloradans for the largest number of people in the party. Look, I'm a big fan of Andrew Romanoff's. I'm a pretty big fan of John Hickenlooper's. I've known both of these guys for a really long time. They've both been excellent to me. They've both helped me out and worked with me and been incredible people. But the voters spoke pretty loudly in that primary, like Hickenlooper overwhelmingly won it. Now it's their job, and we saw this with the vote that Hickenlooper took this week on a symbolic, non-binding amendment to, you know, they call it a voterama when they just bring up a ton of things and they're basically creating campaign material. He voted no on allowing, you know, COVID resources to go to undocumented people. COVID resources were never going to go to undocumented people. That wasn't possible in the policy, but he was given an opportunity to choose whether or not he wanted to symbolically or real or actually demonstrate that he wanted to help out this community. And he said no. And the community really let him have it. And what's interesting about Hickenlooper, and this is one of the things that I'm glad I helped get rid of Cory Gardner, is that he said, okay, maybe I messed up. I want to hear from everybody and hear what you have to say about this. And I want to learn from my mistakes. That's the mark of an interesting and good leader is somebody who can take a vote, take a beating, and then go to the people who beat him up and said, well, okay, teach me how I can be better next time. Cory Gardner never cared, never wanted to have a town hall, never wanted to hear from his constituents. He knew better. We were idiots, and he thought he could trick us again, just like he did in 2014. He found out the hard way it wasn't going to work again. I don't even want to talk about him because I used to be very friendly (laughs) to a lot of radio, but it's sad. I wrote a lot of open letters to him in my column. He had a chance to be an American hero and stop Donald Trump. And Trumpism. Instead, as we sing the praises of female political candidates, let's not forget Lauren Boebert, a manifestation of Trumpism in our beloved Colorado. 
you guys do a great thing on your podcast called the Bo Bear Report. <laughs> What's up with this lady? Will she last? Who knows? I mean, the thing about electoral politics is that especially in congressional districts and legislative districts, uh, geographical locations that have a lot to do. So a state's demographics inform the election of a U.S. senator and, and a district's demographics inform the election of their legislators is that I don't have like evidence for this, but it's my gut that like you can control or affect about 30 percent of the outcome of an election by raising money, sending communications, your candidate's quality, the quality of your campaign, how many doors you knock on, all that stuff. About 60 to 70 percent of it, totally out of your hands. It's to do with the- Location, location, location. Absolutely. It's the national political environment. It's what your opponent is able to do. It's what your district looks like. So Brittany ran in a state Senate district in 2018 that her predecessor, Andy Kerr, had won by less than two points. She won it by 16 points. So you look at that and you say, okay, it was the same district. It was four years later. Brittany and Andy agree on lots of policies. What was the difference? Well, the difference was the year. The difference was the way the district was drawn. The difference was the candidates, right? And what kind of campaigns they run. So, and nothing against Andy Kerr. He's, he's a great guy. He's a good friend. He fights hard. He does great. But like, it's interesting that one seat can swing that widely in that short amount of time. I think I know what happened. The Republican Party's gone nuts in Colorado, and it shows no signs of stopping. I mean, Christy Burton Brown and Scott Gessler both pushing the big lie, trying to win the GOP nomination. It's sickening. And when I say big lie, as a Jewish person, I use the capital B, the capital L, and I'm disgusted by it. I talk about it on the podcast because it leads to disaster. People die because of big lies. And for you being a descendant of Holocaust survivors, don't you share this anger? Come on, guys. You can can make up this or that, but don't go there. The worst part is that I actually think, I don't know, Christy Burton Brown, I've never met her, but from seeing the things she says and the way she talks, I think she believes the election was stolen. The worst part is I think Scott Gessler doesn't but he's saying it anyway because he thinks he's going to get him elected. That, to me, cynicism and lying and trickery is far worse than ignorance and and the ability to be duped by a charlatan like Donald Trump. So I'm actually like more mad at Scott Gessler because he knows he's lying than I am at Christy Burton Brown, who I think is just fooled, quite frankly. Okay, what about problems on the left? Because being in the middle, I see it over there. Ilhan Omar she said some anti-Semitic things all about the Benjamins. And thank but goodness, what's the difference? She apologized. And she met with community and she continues to right. meet with community and she recognized that what she did was wrong. People are allowed to screw up. Hell, I screw up all the time. If people were allowed to screw up, I would not be married anymore. Let me tell you. But like, it is a simple difference that you can trip into something and not know you've screwed up. And when someone tells you how you react, that's the difference. Donald Trump, I'm the most unracist person that's ever existed. No one believes that. <laughs> Ilhan Omar, yeah, she said something that I interpreted as anti-Semitic too. But what she did was she went to the Jewish community. She listened to the leaders. She came back and she said, I'm really sorry. I'll never do that again. I'm learning from my mistakes. That's important. 
Wow, I don't remember quite that much contrition, but look, I'm on her side right now. We're all against Trumpism. And Correct. I also think it's a beautiful thing going on in the Democratic Party with the reunification of blacks and Jews, realization yes. we're all in this together. The way the Georgia race happened with Johnny Ossoff and Reverend Raphael Warnock. Love that guy. But, but you're right. Like oppressed people, low-income folks, people of color, black indigenous folks, Latino folks, Latinas, Jews, women, LGBTQ folks, like there are more of us than there are of the people who want to oppress us. And they win when they get us fighting amongst ourselves and fighting each other. When we unify and realize that the enemy is people who are hoarding wealth, people who are funding racism and things like what happened on January 6th, and who are supporting guys like Donald Trump, then I think it's, you're right, it's a very powerful thing. My dad was in high school with Al Sharpton, and they like wrote the school newspaper together. And when I was growing up, I have all sorts of friends from all sorts of backgrounds and ethnicities. My little brother's best friend to this day is this black kid, Mo, and, and they've been best friends for a million years. They actually, they just released a comic book together, which is really cool. Yeah, but you bring up Sharpton. I'm old enough to remember Crown Heights, that guy Rosenbaum, who got stabbed, a riot that he kind of incited. Are you going to tell me he's sufficiently apologized for that? Maybe he has. I mean, I don't follow Al Sharpton's every word or career move, quite frankly, but at the end of the day, it's like you're either for justice or you're not. You're either for diversity, equity, inclusion, or you're not. And some people don't know that they're not. The difference is if it's brought to their attention and they recognize it and try and work on it, or if it's brought to their attention and they deny it and try and cover it up and get offended and get sad and pretend like it's not a thing, because it's very obvious Donald Trump is <laughs> exhibit A that this country has not yet come close to reckoning with our past and with the institutional and systemic racism that is built into everything. Right. I think that's correct. And we all have to look at ourselves and have the capacity to change. The problem is people have stopped listening. I love writing a column. The Colorado Sun is pretty diverse. And you hope that maybe you can attract somebody on the other side with your argument. Isn't that part of the thrill of writing a column? It is. And if I were just in the business of throwing meat to the base, I wouldn't be having any fun. I'm in the business of trying to get people to see the world the way I do. And part of that, and you're right, it's about listening, is being able to see the world the way other people do. I don't sympathize with Trump supporters because I feel like many of their positions come from a lack of empathy or a short-sighted selfishness or various isms that are triggered and that are brought to the surface and that are, are given permission structures to exist and fester by guys like Donald Trump and people who support him like Cory Gardner. And I, I don't want to say like, I understand where they're coming from. I do blame them, but it's like, I look at them and I look at their backgrounds and I look at where they've come from and I look at what they've been through. And then it's like, okay, like it, it, I guess what I can say is it makes sense that somebody who has had the life experiences of your average Trump supporter would end up supporting Donald Trump. Now, he's got black people and Latinos and women who support him, too. And, and there are plenty of Jews, even after Charlottesville, even after all the anti-Semitism, that stick with him because they think Israel and Jerusalem are the most important issues. And it doesn't matter what somebody else says or does. If they're good on that, that's all I need. Like, to me, 
I think you have to be a little deeper than that. I think you have to look at the totality. But this country's got plenty of single issue voters, you know. And for me, Trump is unique. He is not your normal guy. You have to react to this. And it's made my choices really easy. Are you for Trump or are you against him? And that's my metric now. I agree with you. And like, to me, I have a hard time finding people in my life who I will be close with, who I will respect, who I will give my effort and my work and my love to, who either support him now, especially after all this. I'm more forgiving the people like you who who recognize you made a mistake in 2016 and have done a lot to correct for that. I mean, Craig, you gave up a radio show because you were willing to criticize the president and the network you worked for was not willing to allow you to do that. That's courage, man. Well, it's not like you didn't sacrifice. I mean, Marty Coniglio, he's been on and he sacrificed because he couldn't put up with Trump. And I recall, didn't you do something to express yourself in a way it's not the same so what you're referring to is i was the i think was i was the democratic political analyst for nine news for a couple of years and my staff and i came up with what we thought was a really funny prank because we found out that the portrait of donald trump that is the parties are supposed to fund the painting of the portraits of the president so when barack obama was president The Democratic Party pulled together a ton of money really fast, hired a portrait artist. They painted a portrait of Barack Obama. It went up in no time. It was getting really hard for people to fundraise for the portrait of Trump for some reason. And we thought that was funny. So we decided we were going to make up a big portrait of Vladimir Putin and put it in a very ornate frame like the ones that are in the state capitol and hang it up where the Trump one was supposed to go. We didn't even hang it up. We put it on an easel because I didn't want to be accused of vandalizing the state capitol building my wife works in and that I worked in for seven years of my life, eight years of my life, actually. So we put it on an easel. And I think the prank was fine with them. They knew that what they were getting with me was somebody who was going to throw punches and somebody who was a little aggressive and no holds barred. Like they knew that already. What they seemed to have had issue with was that an aide to one of the Democrats in office actually kind of let us in the side door we didn't go through security and they said, oh, my goodness, you could have brought something dangerous like a weapon or something. And I said, yeah, but we didn't. We brought a painting. So we're liberals, for God's sakes. We're not. Gonna right. Exactly. Yes. Can we just like chill out a little bit? And besides the fact, you probably know this, the state capitol actually never had security until about 2007 when there was an attempt made on then Governor Bill Ritter's life. Then they put up, the, they locked all the doors in the outside, they put up the metal detectors, they controlled the in and out of the Capitol. That's, I think, the line that Nine News didn't like that I crossed, and I snuck into the Capitol. Actually, it wasn't even me. It was Alan <laughs> on our staff who ended up actually doing it. It was just like me and a couple of people had the idea, and Alan was the one who actually snuck in there. And the thing I do take issue with is that they actually didn't tell me that they didn't want to work with me anymore. They let me kind of just languish for a couple of months, and then when election night 2018 came around, I got a phone call from somebody over there who said, yeah, you know, we're going to go in a different direction for election night coverage. And I was like, you could have just told me. So here's the good news. I always learn my lessons and the world closes a door, it opens a window. I went to Megan Schrader at the Denver Post and I said, hey, look, I don't work for Nine News anymore. I noticed that your columnists are a little bit in the center and a little bit to the right and that there's this uh, little bit of a gap here 
over on the progressive side of things, I write for a living and, and I would be honored to audition for a columnist if you've got one open. And she thought about it for a little while and, and, and then wrote to me and said, Hey, all right, let's, let's see what you can do. So I wrote a couple test columns. She liked them. I think the audience liked them or at least were encouraged to interact with them. And I've been doing that for a little over two years now. And if I had to pick, I like this gig a lot better. This is a lot of fun. I'm having a great time writing for the post. Here's the thing. History will judge you kindly. I think people who oppose Donald Trump, and you were right about that. A lot of people were. Did you know he was going to be this bad? Yeah. You can go back to 2016 when he was here at the Western Conservative Summit. It was my first month or second month at Progress Now. And we were waving the red flag and, and blinking lights and all that stuff way back then. I mean, but I was there at that speech. It was dull. He lied about the size of the crowd. It was about one third full. And I realized, hey, this guy isn't necessarily dedicated to the truth now, is he? But didn't he give one of the most boring speeches ever there? Sure. But here's the thing, man. New Yorkers know Trump is full of it for a very, very long time. We're familiar with him and his father's racist housing policies. We're familiar with the fact that he would rip off his workers and subcontractors. We're familiar with the fact that the idea of Trump is a bunch of gold foil on a non-gold object. We're familiar with the fact that he's a charlatan and a showman and a liar. The rest of the country thought he was this big shot businessman because he was doing The Apprentice. And God rest his soul, this guy, Joel Silberman, who was in a Silberman with a B, maybe related, maybe not. He was a dedicated trainer of progressive candidates and, and people like me. He passed away a couple of years ago. But he said this in 2016 to a crowd of progressives at like Netroots Nation or one of our big confabs. He said, mark my words, Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States. And it was like May or June of 2016. And everybody was freaking out. What are you talking about? Just like yelling and screaming. He goes, he walked down that escalator and 16 million Americans spent every Friday evening or whatever, Thursday night, whenever the show was on with him in their living rooms. That guy is dangerous. Watch out for him. I bet he wins. And he was right. That's when I started taking it seriously, because Joel Silberman was one of the smartest political minds that this country has ever seen that most people don't know about. He called this, and that's when I started looking at it differently. And the danger for me wasn't the, I mean, the, the racism and the wall stuff and the, the initial speech where he said Mexicans are rapists and criminals and they're not sending their best. That was more than enough for me at that moment to say, this guy is dangerous. This guy does not see the world in a good way. He can't get elected. It was that his repeated and you said this a minute ago, his relationship with the truth was non-existent. He was trying to manufacture the world he wanted to exist in front of him by speaking it into existence. And for the majority of his life, it worked. I want to take your life rap, though. You're a New Yorker, New Jersey, same difference. <laughs> you followed him. I'm a Colorado kid. What did I know about Donald Trump? I had to learn it would be like if Douglas Bruce ever got a good tailor and ran somewhere else. <laughs> now, let me tell you about Douglas Bruce. We know him in right. Colorado. Right. right. But you learned and you changed and you sacrificed and put your career and your influence and your probably friendships and relationships on the line for the right thing to do. And that's why that's one of the main reasons why I respect you and, and why I'm happy to be on the show and why I like reading your stuff. Because in my opinion, you're allowed to be wrong. You're allowed to be wrong for a really long time. 
But if you come around, if you change your mind, if when presented with the evidence, you finally say, I can't do it anymore, welcome in. I mean, I have no, there's no gate to keep for the progressive movement. We're a big tent party. And there's a lot of people, you saw this, this uh, story, I'm sure, in Colorado Public Radio and Nine News did a version two where they saw 5,000 Republicans change their registration unaffiliated after January 6th. Yes. And it'll be interesting because to me, the Republican Party is on life support. And I don't think they're going to get out of it until they deal with Donald Trump. And it's a problem because you would agree, America, Colorado, we all benefit when we have two legitimate functioning political parties that can speak with each other. Yes, competition is good when it's warranted by partisanship is good. I mean, Brittany works across the aisle all the time, even though she doesn't have to, right? She works with guys like Kevin Priola and women like Lois Landgraf, people who we couldn't disagree about more things. This guy, Jim Wilson, who unfortunately was termed out and has been replaced by one of these people who was at the Capitol in D.C. on January 6th. I, I forget his name, but he's a dangerous guy, too. Brittany and Jim worked together hand in glove for years and years on education policy, even though she was the majority. He was in the minority and she didn't really need to. When you include other voices and other perspectives, you actually improve policies. But only if both sides are operating in good faith. And quite frankly, the Colorado Republican Party and the National Republican Party has had a problem operating in good faith since, in my opinion, way before, but roughly around 2008, when Barack Obama was first running, that it became like very apparent that they are willing to lie, cheat, steal, and be absolute utter hypocrites as long as it serves their political ends. They are lost, but you are found, Ian. I hope you will be a regular guest. I enjoy your columns. Keep it up. And the thing Thanks, I admire Greg. about you is you seem like a great dude. You're a proud Jew, and you love your son. Are you going to have more yeah. kids now? I don't know. Um, he's you a lot, You need to give man. Davis' little brother a <laughs> he's little a sister. Lot. Again, I'm, I'm got... like your mother's age, so I'm going to like I bet she's got the dog. Uh, no. So my little brother has two great kids, Leon and Remy, my niece and nephew, and they all live on the East Coast still. And we've got Davis, and my mom was sure that Brittany and I were never going to have kids, so she is so happy we even had one. And, you know, he's a lot of work. We love him dearly. Right now, we outnumber him. If it becomes man-on-man, man, I'm not sure we could do it. So for the time being, we're very happy, but he's only one in a little bit, so maybe we'll see what happens. Well, thanks a lot for a great hour. Ian Silvery, let's stay in touch. Thanks, Craig. I'll show up anytime. Thank Talk to you. you soon. Bye. Good luck to you. You too. Hey, will you just do this for me? Go to my website at CraigSilvermanShow.com. Scroll down and look at that picture of my pal, Dan Levitt. He's a professional sales trainer and coach with Sandler Training. Now, Sandler has been doing this for many decades with great success. If you are in the sales business, then you need some training. Maybe you have already had it. God bless you. But if you feel like you are falling short, that you could learn some skills that could increase your income, Sandler knows what to do. And my friend Dan Levitt knows as well. Look at his face on my website and tell me if that little smile on his face does not make you want to smile back. I do. And I don't smile all the time. 
but Dan Levitt is fun to talk to, and he will give you a great deal if you say Craig sent me. Call Dan Levitt. First look at his picture, smile back, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107 for the best possible deal. Tell Dan Craig sent me. Thank you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bacon. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MB LawLLC.com. And what a show it was. My sincerest thanks to my troubadour, Dave Gunders. Love that song, Some Days. Ian Silveri, you are a cool dude. Thank you for spending time with me. Whitney Trailer, I'm impressed by you, sir. Way to go. Keep it going on Nine News and at Metro State and in your private practice. We will get the results of the impeachment trial to talk about next week. I think we know what it will be, but there could be surprises and we will be all over it. Thank you. See you next Saturday. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.